4. They are especially significant because they determine the size of the social group. This must be forever small in areas of limited resources or of limited extent, as in the little islands of the world and the yet smaller oases, the desert of Chinese Turkestan supports, in certain detached spots of river-born fertility, populations like the 60.000 of Kashgar, and from the size groups all the way down to the single families which young who's been found living by a mere trickle of a stream flowing down the southern slope of the Tian Shan. Small islands, according to their size, fertility, and command of trade, may harbor a sparse and scant population, like the 500 souls struggling for an ill-fed existence on the barren Westman Isles of Iceland, or a compact, teeming, yet absolutely small social group, like that crowding Malta or the Bermudas, whether sparsely or compactly distributed, such groups suffer the limitations inherent in their small size, they are forever excluded from the historical significance attaching to the large, continuously distributed populations of fertile continental lands, i.d., the next class belongs exclusively to the domain of geography, because it embraces the influence of the features of the Earth's surface in directing the movements and ultimate distribution of mankind, it includes the effect of natural barriers, like mountains, deserts, swamps, and seas, in obstructing or deflecting the course of migrating people and in giving direction to national expansion, it considers the tendency of river valleys and treeless plains to facilitate such movements, the power of rivers, lakes, bays and oceans either to block the path or open a highway, according as navigation is in a primitive or advanced stage, and finally the influence of all these natural features in determining the territory which a people is likely to occupy, and the boundaries which shall separate from their neighbors. The lines of expansion followed by the French and English in the settlement of America and also the extent of territory covered by each were powerfully influenced by geographic conditions. The early French explorers entered the Great East-West Waterway of the St. Lawrence River and the Great Lakes, which carried them around the northern end of the Appalachian Barrier into the heart of the continent, planted them on the low, swampy, often navigable watershed of the Mississippi and started them on another river voyage of nearly 2,000 miles to the Gulf of Mexico. Here were the conditions and temptation for almost unlimited expansion, hence French Canada reached to the head of Lake Superior, and French Louisiana to the sources of the Missouri. To the lot of the English fell a series of short rivers with fertile valleys, nearly barred at their not distant sources by a wall of forest mountains, but separated from one another by low watersheds which facilitated lateral expansion over a narrow belt between mountains and sea. Here a region of mild climate and fertile soil sweet to agriculture, enclosed by strong natural boundaries, made for compact settlement, in contrast to the wide diffusion of the French. Later, when a growing population pressed against the western barrier, mountain gates opened at Cumberland Gap and the Mohawk Valley, the Ohio River and the Great Lakes became interior thoroughfares and the northwestern prairies lines of least resistance to the western settler. Rivers played the same part in directing and expediting this forward movement, as did the Lena and the Amur in the Russian advance into Siberia, the Humber and the Trent in the progress of the Angles into the heart of Britain, the Rhone and Danube in the march of the Romans into Central Europe. The geographical environment of a people may be such as to segregate them from others, and thereby to preserve or even intensify their natural characteristics or it may expose them to extraneous influences, to an infusion of new blood and new ideas, till their peculiarities are toned down, their distinctive features of dialect or national dress or provincial customs eliminated, 
and the people as a whole approach to the composite type of civilized humanity. A land shut off by mountains or sea from the rest of the world tends to develop a homogeneous people, since it limits or prevents the intrusion of foreign elements, or when once these are introduced, it encourages their rapid assimilation by the strongly interactive life of a confined locality. Therefore large or remote islands are, as a rule, distinguished by the unity of their inhabitants in point of civilization and race characteristics. Witness Great Britain, Ireland, Japan, Iceland, as also Australia and New Zealand at the time of their discovery. The highlands of the southern Appalachians, which form the mountain backyards of Kentucky, Tennessee and North Carolina, are peopled by the purest English stock in the United States, descendants of the backwoodsmen of the late 18th century. Difficulty of access and lack of arable land have combined to discourage immigration. In consequence, foreign elements, including the elsewhere ubiquitous Negro, are wanting, except along the few railroads which in recent years have penetrated this country. Here survive an 18th century English. Christmas celebrated on Twelfth Night, the spinning wheel, and a belief in Joshua's power to arrest the course of the sun. An easily accessible land is geographically hospitable to all newcomers facilitates the mingling of peoples, the exchange of commodities and ideas, the amalgamation of races in such regions depends upon the similarity or diversity of the ethnic elements and the duration of the common occupation. The broad, open valley of the Danube from the Black Sea to Vienna contains a bizarre mixture of several stocks Turks, Bulgarians, various families of pure Slavs, Romanians, Hungarians, and Germans. These elements are too diverse and their occupation of the valley to recent for amalgamation to have advanced very far as yet. The maritime plain and open river valleys of northern France show a complete fusion of the native Celts with the Saxons, Franks, and Normans who have successively drifted into the region, just as the Teutonic and Skanderslav elements have blended in the Baltic plains from the Elba to the Vistula. Here are four different classes of geographic influences all which may become active in modifying a people when it changes its habitat. Many of the characteristics acquired in the old home still live on, or at best yield slowly to the new environment. This is especially true of the direct physical and psychical effects. But the country may work a prompt and radical change in the social organization of an immigrant people by the totally new conditions of economic life which it presents. These may be either greater wealth or poverty of natural resources than the race has previously known new stimulants or deterrents to commerce and intercourse, and new conditions of climate which affect the efficiency of the workman and the general character of production. From these a whole complex mass of secondary effects may follow. The Aryans and Mongols, leaving their homes in the cool barren highlands of Central Asia where nature dispensed her gifts with a miserly hand, and coming down to the hot, low, fertile plains of the Indian rivers underwent several fundamental changes in the process of adaptation to their new environment. An enervating climate did its work in slaking their energies, but more radical still was the change wrought by the contrast of poverty and abundance. Enforced asceticism and luxury, presented by the old and new home, the restless, tireless shepherds became a sedentary, agricultural people, the abstemious nomads, spare, sinewy, strangers to indulgence became a race of rulers, reveling in luxury lording it over countless subjects, finally, their numbers increased rapidly, no longer kept down by the scant subsistence of arid grasslands and scattered oases, in a similar way, the Arab of the desert became transformed into the sedentary lord of Spain, in the luxuriance of field and orchard which his skillful methods of irrigation and tillage produced, 
in the growing predominance of the intellectual over the nomadic military life, of the complex affairs of city and mart over the simple tasks of herdsman or cultivator, he lost the benefit of the early harsh training and therewith his hold upon his Iberian empire. Biblical history gives us the picture of the Sheikh Abraham, accompanied by his nephew Alot, moving up from the rainless plains of Mesopotamia with his flocks and herds into the better watered Palestine. There his descendants in the garden land of Canaan became an agricultural people, and the problem of Moses and the judges was to prevent their assimilation in religion and custom to the settled Semitic tribes about them, and to make them preserve the ideals born in the starry solitudes of the desert. The change from the nomadic to the sedentary life represents an economic advance. Sometimes removal to strongly contrasted geographic conditions necessitates a reversion to a lower economic type of existence. The French colonists who came to Lower Canada in the 17th and 18th centuries found themselves located in a region of intense cold, where arable soil was inferior in quality and limited in amount, producing no staple like the tobacco of Virginia or the wheat of Maryland or the cotton of South Carolina or the sugar of the West Indies, by which a young colony might secure a place in European trade. But the snow-wrapped forests of Canada yielded in abundance of fur-bearing animals the fineness and thickness of whose pelts were born of this frozen north, into their remotest haunts at the head of Lake Superior or of Hudson Bay. Long lines of rivers and lakes opened level water roads a thousand miles or more from the crude little colonial capital at Quebec, and over in Europe beaver hats and fur-trimmed garments were all the style. So the plodding farmer from Normandy and the fisherman from Poitou, transferred to Canadian soil, were irresistibly drawn into the adventurous life of the trapper and fur trader. The fur trade became the accepted basis of colonial life, the voyageur and courier de bois, clad in skins, paddling up ice-rimmed streams in their birch bark canoes, fraternizing with Indians who were their only companions in that bleak interior, and married off into dusky squaws, became assimilated to the savage life about them and reverted to the lower hunter stage of civilization. Another pronounced instance of rapid retrogression under new and favorable geographic conditions is afforded by the South African Boer. The transfer from the busy commercial cities of the Rhine Mounts to the faraway periphery of the world's trade, from the intensive agriculture of small deltaic gardens and the scientific dairy farming of the moist Netherlands to the semi-arid pastures of the high, treeless belt, where they were barred from contact with the vivifying sea and its shipborne commerce, has changed the enterprising 17th century Hollander into the conservative pastoral boar. Dutch cleanliness has necessarily become a tradition to a people who can scarcely find water for their cattle. The comfort and solid bourgeois elegance of the Dutch home lost its material equipment in the Great Trek, when the long wagon journey reduced household furniture to its lowest terms. Housewifely habits and order vanished in the semi-nomadic life which followed. The gregarious instinct, bred by the closely packed population of Little Holland, was transformed to a love of solitude which in all lands characterizes the people of a remote and sparsely inhabited frontier. It is a common saying that the boar cannot bear to see another man smoke from his stove, just as the early Trans-Allegheny pioneer was always on the move westward, because he could not bear to hear his neighbor's watchdog bark. Even the boar language has deteriorated under the effects of isolation and a lower status of civilization. The native tile differs widely from the polished speech of Holland, it preserves some features of the High Dutch of two centuries ago, but has lost inflexions and borrowed words for new phenomena from the English. Coffers and hogtots can express no abstract ideas, only the concrete ideas of a dull, work-a-day world. 
the new habitat may eliminate many previously acquired characteristics and hence transform a people, as in the case of the Boers, or it may intensify tribal or national traits, as in the seafaring propensities of the Angles and Saxons when transferred to Britain, and of the 17th century English when transplanted to the indented coasts of New England, or it may tolerate mere survival or the slow desuetude of qualities which escape any particular pressure in the new environment and which neither benefit nor handicap in the modified struggle for existence. Chapter III Society and State in Relation to the Land Every clan, tribe, state or nation includes two ideas, a people and its land, the first and thinkable without the other, history, sociology, ethnology touch only the inhabited areas of the earth. These areas gain their final significance because of the people who occupy them, their local conditions of climate, soil, natural resources, Physical features and geographic situation are important primarily as factors in the development of actual or possible inhabitants. A land is fully comprehended only when studied in the light of its influence upon its people, and a people cannot be understood apart from the field of its activities. More than this, human activities are fully intelligible only in relation to the various geographic conditions which have stimulated them in different parts of the world. The principles of the evolution of navigation, of agriculture, of trade, as also the theory of population, can never reach their correct and final statement, unless the data for the conclusions are drawn from every part of the world, and each fact interpreted in the light of the local conditions whence it sprang. Therefore anthropology, sociology and history should be permeated by geography. In history, the question of territory, by which is meant near area in contrast to specific geographic conditions has constantly come to the front because a state obviously involved land and boundaries, and assumed as its chief function the defense and extension of these. Therefore political geography developed early as an offshoot of history. Political science has often formulated its principles without regard to the geographic conditions of states. But as a matter of fact, the most fruitful political policies of nations have almost invariably had a geographic core. Witness the colonial policy of Holland, England, France and Portugal the free trade policy of England, the militantism of Germany, the whole complex question of European balance of power and the Bosporus, and the Monroe Doctrine of the United States. Dividing lines between political parties tend to follow approximately geographic lines of cleavage, and these make themselves apparent at recurring intervals of national upheaval, perhaps with centuries between, like a submarine volcanic rift. In England the southeastern plain and the northwestern uplands have been repeatedly arrayed against each other, from the Roman conquest which embraced the lowlands up to about the 500-foot contour line, through the War of the Roses and the Civil War, to the struggle for the repeal of the Corn Laws and the Great Reform Bill of 1832. Though the boundary lines have been only roughly the same and each district has contained opponents of the dominant local party, nevertheless the geographic core has been plain enough. The land is a more conspicuous factor in the history of states than in the history of society, but not more necessary and potent. Wars, which constitute so large a part of political history, have usually aimed more or less directly at acquisition or retention of territory, they have made every petty quarrel the pretext for Malk being the weaker nation of part of its land. Political maps are therefore subject to sudden and radical alterations as when France's name was wiped off the North American continent in 1763, or when recently Spain's sovereignty in the Western Hemisphere was obliterated. But the race stocks, languages, customs, and institutions of both France and Spain remained after the flags had departed, 
The reason is that society is far more deeply rooted in the land than is a state, does not expand or contract its area so readily. Society is always, in a sense, inscriptiglibi, an expanding state which incorporates a new piece of territory inevitably incorporates its inhabitants, unless it exterminates or expels them. Yet because racial and social geography changes slowly, quietly and imperceptibly, like all those fundamental processes which we call growth, it is not so easy and obvious a task to formulate a natural law for the territorial relations of the various hunter, pastoral nomadic, agricultural, and industrial types of society as for those of the growing state. Most systems of sociology treat man as if he were in some way detached from the earth's surface, they ignore the land basis of society. The anthropogeographer recognizes the various social forces, economic and psychologic, which sociologists regard as the cement of societies, but he has something to add. He sees in the land occupied by a primitive tribe or a highly organized state the underlying material bond holding society together, the ultimate basis of their fundamental social activities, which are therefore derivatives from the land. He sees the common territory exercising an integrating force. Weak in primitive communities where the group has established only a few slight and temporary relations with its soil, so that this low social complex breaks up readily like its organic counterpart, the low animal organism found in an amoeba, he sees it growing stronger with every advance in civilization involving more complex relations to the land, with settled habitations, with increased density of population, with a discriminating and highly differentiated use of the soil, with the exploitation of mineral resources and finally with that far-reaching exchange of commodities and ideas which means the establishment of varied extraterritorial relations. Finally, the modern society or state has grown into every foot of its own soil, exploited its every geographic advantage, utilized its geographic location to enrich itself by international trade, and when possible, to absorb outlying territories by means of colonies. The broader this geographic base, the richer, more varied its resources and the more favorable its climate to their exploitation, the more numerous and complex are the connections which the members of a social group can establish with it, and through it with each other, or in other words, the greater may be its ultimate historical significance, the polar regions and the subtropical deserts, on the other hand, permit man to form only few and intermittent relations with any one spot, restrict economic methods to the lower stages of development, produce only the small, weak, loosely organized horde, which never evolves into a state so long as it remains in that retarding environment. Man in his larger activities, as opposed to his mere physiological or psychological processes, cannot be studied apart from the land which he inhabits, whether we consider him singly or in a group family, clan, tribe or state we must always consider him or his group in relation to a piece of land, the ancient Irish September Highland clan, Russian near, Cherokee Hill Town, Bedouin tribe, and the ancient Helvetian canton, like the political state of history, had meant always a group of people and a bit of land, the first presupposes the second, in all cases the form and size of the social group, the nature of its activities, the trend and limit of its development will be strongly influenced by the size and nature of its habitat, the land basis is always present, in spite of Morgan's artificial distinction between a theoretically landless societas held together only by the bond of common blood, and the political chivitas based upon land, though primitive society found its conscious bond in common blood, nevertheless the land bond was always there, 
and it gradually asserted its fundamental character with the evolution of society. The savage and barbarous groups which in Morgan's classification would fall under the head of societas had nevertheless a clear conception of their ownership of the tribal lands which they use in common. This idea is probably of very primitive origin, arising from the association of a group with its habitat, whose food supply they regard as a monopoly. This is true even of migratory hunting tribes. They claim a certain area whose boundaries, however, are often ill-defined and subject to fluctuations, because the lands are not held by permanent occupancy and cultivation. An exceptional case is that of the Shoshone Indians, inhabiting the barren Utah Basin and the upper valleys of the Snake and Salmon Rivers, who are accredited with no sense of ownership of the soil. In their natural state they roved about in small, totally unorganized bands or single families, and changed their locations so widely, that they seemed to allay no claim to any particular portion. The hopeless sterility of the region and its poverty of game kept its destitute inhabitants constantly on the move to gather in the meager food supply, and often restricted the social group to the family. Here the bond between land and tribe, and hence between the members of the tribe, was the weakest possible. The usual type of tribal ownership was presented by the Comanches, nomadic horse Indians who occupied the grassy plains of northern Texas. They held their territory and the game upon it as the common property of the tribe and jealously guarded the integrity of their domain. The chief Algonquin tribes, who occupied the territory between the Ohio River and the Great Lakes, had each its separate domain, within which it shifted its villages every few years, but its size depended upon the power of the tribe to repel encroachment upon its hunting grounds, relying mainly on the chase and fishing, little on agriculture, for their subsistence. Their relations to their soil were superficial and transitory their tribal organization in a high degree unstable. Students of American ethnology generally agree that most of the Indian tribes east of the Mississippi were occupying definite areas at the time of the discovery, and were to a considerable extent sedentary and agricultural, though nomadic within the tribal territory. As they moved with the season in pursuit of game, they returned to their villages, which were shifted only at relatively long intervals. The political organization of the native Australians low as they were in the social scale, seems to have been based chiefly on the claim of each wretched wandering tribe to a definite territory. In north-central Australia, where even a very sparse population has sufficed to saturate the sterile soil, tribal boundaries have become fixed and inviolable, so that even war brings no transfer of territory. Land and people are identified. The bond is cemented by their primitive religion, for the tribe's spirit ancestors occupied this special territory. In a like manner a very definite conception of tribal ownership of land prevails among the Bushmen and Bechuanas of South Africa, and to the pastoral Hereros the alienation of their land is inconceivable. See map page 105. A tribe of hunters can never be more than a small horde, because the simple, monotonous savage economy permits no concentration of population, no division of labor except that between the sexes, and hence no evolution of classes. The common economic level of all is reflected in the simple social organization, which necessarily has little cohesion, because the group must be prepared to break up and scatter in smaller divisions, when its members increase or its savage supplies decrease even a little. Such primitive groups cannot grow into larger units, because these would demand more roots sent down into the sustaining soil, but they multiply by fission, like the infusorial monads and thereafter lead independent existences remote from each other. This is the explanation of multiplication of dialects among savage tribes, 
Fishing tribes have their chief occupation determined by their habitats, which are found along well-stocked rivers, lakes, or coastal fishing grounds. Conditions here encourage an early adoption of sedentary life, discourage wandering except for short periods, and facilitate the introduction of agriculture wherever conditions of climate and soil permit. Hence these fisher folk develop relatively large and permanent social groups, as testified by the ancient lake villages of Switzerland, based upon a concentrated food supply resulting from a systematic and often varied exploitation of the local resources. The cooperation and submission to a leader necessary in pelagic fishing often gives the preliminary training for higher political organization. All the primitive stocks of the Brazilian Indians, except the mountain geese, are fishermen and agriculturists, hence their annual migrations are kept within narrow limits. Each linguistic group occupies a fixed and relatively well-defined district. Stanley found along the Congo large permanent villages of the natives, who were engaged in fishing and tilling the fruitful soil but knew little about the country ten miles back from the river. These two generous means of subsistence are everywhere combined in Polynesia, Micronesia and Melanesia, there they are associated with dense populations and often with advanced political organization, as we find it in the feudal monarchy of Tonga and the savage Fiji Islands. Fisher tribes, therefore, get an early impulse forward in civilization, and even where conditions do not permit the upward step to agriculture. These tribes have permanent relations with their land, form stable social groups, and often utilize their location on a natural highway to develop systematic trade. For instance, on the northwest coast of British Columbia and southern Alaska, the Haida, Lingit and Chinchian Indians have portioned out all the land about their seaboard villages among the separate families or households as hunting, fishing, and burying grounds. These are regarded as private property and are handed down from generation to generation. If they are used by anyone other than the owner, the privilege must be paid for. Every salmon stream has its proprietor, whose summer camp can be seen set up at the point where the run of the fish is greatest. Combined with this private property in land there is a brisk trade up and down the coast, and a tendency toward feudalism in the village communities, owing to the association of power and social distinction with wealth and property in land. Among pastoral nomads, among whom a systematic use of their territory begins to appear, and therefore a more definite relation between land and people, we find a more distinct notion than among wandering hunters of territorial ownership, the right of communal use, and the distinct obligation of common defense. Hence the social bond is drawn closer. The nomad identifies himself with a certain district, which belongs to his tribe by tradition or conquest, and has its clearly defined boundaries. Here he roams between its summer and winter pastures, possibly 150 miles apart, visits its small arable patches in the spring for his limited agricultural ventures, and returns to them in the fall to reap their meager harvest. Its springs, streams, or wells assume enhanced value, are things to be fought for, owing to the prevailing aridity of summer, while ownership of a certain tract of desert or grassland carries with it a certain right in the bordering settled district as an area of plunder. The Karakirgai stock, who have been located since the 16th century on Lake Isakul, long ago portioned out the land among the separate families, and determined their limits by natural features of the landscape. Sven had been found on the Tarim River pole set up to mark the boundary between the Shayar and Kuchar tribal pastures. John the Plano Carpini, traveling over southern Russia in 1246, immediately after the Tartar conquest, found that the Dnieper, Don, 
Volga and Ural rivers were all boundaries between domains of the various millionaries or thousands, into which the Tartar horde was organized. The population of this vast country was distributed according to the different degrees of fertility and the size of the pastoral groups. Volney observed the same distinction in the distribution of the Bedouins of Syria. He found the barren cantons held by small, widely scattered tribes, as in the desert of Suez, but the cultivable cantons, like the Auran and the Pashalik of Aleppo, closely dotted by the encampments of the pastoral owners. The large range of territory held by a nomadic tribe is all successively occupied in the course of a year, but each part only for a short period of time. A pastoral use of even a good district necessitates a move of five or ten miles every few weeks. The whole, large as it may be, is absolutely necessary for the annual support of the tribe. Hence any outside encroachment upon their territory calls for the united resistance of the tribe. This joint or social action is dictated by their common interest in pastures and herds. The social administration embodied in the apportionment of pastures among the families or clans grows out of the systematic use of their territory, which represents a closer relation between land and people than is found among purely hunting tribes, overcrowding by men or livestock, on the other hand, puts a strain upon the social bond. When Abraham and Lot, typical nomads, returned from Egypt to Canaan with their large flocks and herds. Rivalry for the pastures occasioned conflicts among their shepherds, so the two sheiks decided to separate. Abraham took the hill pastures of Judea, and lot the plains of Jordan near the settled district of Sodom. The larger the amount of territory necessary for the support of a given number of people, whether the proportion be due to permanent poverty of natural resources as in the Eskimo country or to a retarded economic development as among the Indians of primitive America or the present Sudanese. The looser is the connection between land and people, and the lower the type of social organization. For such groups the organic theory of society finds an apt description. To quote Spencer, the original clusters, animal and social, are not only small, but they lack density. Creatures of low type occupy large spaces considering the small quantity of animal substance they contain and low-type societies spread over areas that are wide relatively to, 